it. Like I've always done and always will. Welcome to New York Now. I'm David Lombardo, host of WCNY's The Capitol Press Room. It was another busy week at the Capitol, with state lawmakers in town for a three-day session, which included a Senate hearing on the state's controversial prison labor practices, interviews for aspiring state Board of Regents candidates, and joint legislative budget hearings on mental health, taxes, and housing. Advocates and lawmakers also tried to grab the media spotlight this week, addressing a wide variety of issues, including interrogations by the police and New York's status as a so-called sanctuary state. We also got long-awaited action from the state's Bipartisan Redistricting Commission, which was tasked by New York's highest court with drawing a new set of congressional boundaries after the commission was unable to reach an agreement on lines in 2022. We'll have an extensive look at the proposed congressional maps and what they mean for November's elections on a future episode of the show. But now we're going to highlight the issue of access to birth control, and specifically hormonal birth control for women like the patch, the pill, the ring, and emergency contraception. And while this area of reproductive rights often takes a backseat to abortion access, it has been an evolving issue in New York since 2019, with the passage of a law requiring insurers to cover FDA-approved contraception without a copay. And for the latest news, we spoke earlier this week to Jenna Bimby, co-executive director of the New York Birth Control Access Project. Here's that conversation. Well, thanks so much for making the time, Jenna. I am happy to be here and always happy to talk about birth control. Well, it's definitely our pleasure. So for starters, in 2023, state lawmakers and Governor Hochul signed off on legislation designed to make it easier to access hormonal birth control, which traditionally required a script from a doctor or nurse. Can you walk us through the new law, which is expected to take effect this year? Yes. But first, I want to give a little bit of context to the law, which is, you know, despite there being so many options for birth control, people still face barriers to getting it. 1.2 million women in New York live in a contraceptive desert, which means it's too difficult for them to get birth control. So because of the Birth Control Access Act, which you just referenced, patients can now walk into their pharmacy, talk to their pharmacist about the birth control that they want, and the pharmacist will write that prescription for them and the patient can walk out that day with their birth control. What happens now, before the Birth Control Access Act takes effect, is that a patient generally goes to a provider, um, an OBGYN, a nurse practitioner, a midwife. They'll need to make an appointment and then go in to see that provider. But by allowing a patient to go to the pharmacy to do this, we're creating a one-stop shop where they walk into the pharmacy, they can get their prescription there, they can get their birth control filled, and they walk out with their birth control that day. About 25 other states have passed legislation similar to this. And so it was really exciting to see New York do the same and ensure that we're staying a leader in reproductive health care. Well, you mentioned the hoops and hurdles that people might have to go through currently to access hormonal birth control. So is the idea that there are just a wider availability of pharmacies for people to go to and theoretically access hormonal birth control this way, like the patch or the pill? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Pharmacists tend to be the most accessible type of provider, and most Americans live closer to a pharmacy than um, a typical provider of birth control. This is going to be especially true for folks living in rural areas upstate. And if you think about it, sort of how you get your vaccines now, right? We can pop into a pharmacy and get a flu vaccine or a COVID vaccine from our pharmacist without a prescription. You'll be able to do the same thing 
but for birth control. And it'll be for the pill, the patch, or the ring. And we're very hopeful that after the end of this legislative session, we will also see that the birth control shot can be um, prescribed and administered by a pharmacist. So what needs to happen to ensure that this law works effectively? Is it just about promoting the fact that this option exists by going on uh, really important public media television shows? Or do pharmacists need some sort of training as well? So to your first point, it's really important that people know that it's available to them and that pharmacists know that they can do it. Laws aren't rights until people know about them. So the education piece is going to be critical. In some states that have in, enacted pharmacist prescribed birth control, it's as easy as putting a sticker in the pharmacy window that says this pharmacist can prescribe birth control. And you can see an uptake in the number of patients that are coming in to get their birth control at their birth control prescription at the pharmacy. There is some training that pharmacists are going to need to do and the Department of Health and the state education department are going to be dealing with that and pushing that out. But for the most part, what we're most um, what we're most concerned about as advocates is making sure that patients know that they can go to their pharmacy without a prescription for birth control and walk out with their birth control that day. And after someone has gone through that potential option in the future, Jenna, is that the way they can get their birth control for the refills and whatnot? Or at some point, would a patient have to go see a doctor or a nurse to get uh, their birth control refilled. No, and that's what makes this so exciting is that from here on out, a patient can see a pharmacist to get their birth control. Now, maybe a pharmacist will suggest that for whatever reason, a patient needs to go see a provider because the pharmacist has uh, realized that a provider is going to be the better place for a patient to to go to, to get answers to questions or to make a different decision about the type of birth control they're going to get. But a patient doesn't need to do that. They'll be able to receive the prescription and the birth control from their pharmacist now. And if this is the first time that someone is getting birth control, will the pharmacist be providing them with any sort of information about maybe the dangers that they need to be aware of or maybe side effects? Is there any sort of screening that they may go through to help them navigate this new process? Yeah. So a pharmacist will provide them with a patient screening tool, which will screen out any contraindications. Or like I said before, um, if they need to send them to a provider, an OBGYN, a nurse practitioner, a midwife, um, then that screening tool will help the pharmacist know that they need to do that. Um, but if not, then the pharmacist can prescribe the birth control right then and there. Well, looking ahead at the 2024 legislative session, you're also trying to make emergency contraception more accessible to young people by requiring it be placed in vending machines at public colleges and universities. Before we get into the rationale for this requirement, can you explain what emergency contraception actually is? Because I think there is a lot of misconception about what it does. I would love to explain that because there are misconceptions and we need to dispel those about birth control writ large. But for emergency contraception, for the purposes of this conversation, um, Emergency contraception is just another type of birth control. Most people know it by the name Plan B or the morning after pill. And it is not the abortion pill, which is sometimes the thing that people confuse it with. Um, emergency contraception is simply another type of birth control. Well, turning to your legislative push then, why should SUNY and CUNY schools be required to have emergency contraception in at least one vending machine on their campuses? We're really, really excited about this legislation. So what will happen is you will be putting, these colleges will be putting 
emergency contraception in a vending machine. And in doing so, you are putting emergency contraception, this, this type of birth control, where a patient needs it, where a student needs it, when a student needs it. And location is so important because emergency contraception is most effective within 72 hours. So some campuses have health centers, but not all SUNY and CUNY campuses have health centers. And even the ones that do, um, you know, the hours might not be as, as open as long as, um, as often as you would see a student be able to get it from a vending machine. And then there's the price. We're working to get the emergency contraception into a vending machine at an affordable price. We're hoping for around $10. We've seen this happen at John Jay College, at SUNY Upstate, at SUNY Met Upstate Medical, as well as University at Buffalo, and they've all placed it for around $10. And then finally, students talk to us about the anonymity aspect, right? Oftentimes, if you go to a pharmacy, not only is it expensive, the emergency contraception, it often is maybe locked behind a case and you've got to ask somebody at the pharmacy to come unlock it for you. And that can be really uncomfortable for a young person. So we've got hundreds of SUNY and CUNY students that we talk to all of the time. And they say, because it'll be easy, it'll be easier to access because it's on campus. It's an affordable price. And there's the anonymity factor that is really important to them as well. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have this week. We've been speaking with Jenna Bimby. She is the co-executive director of the Birth Control Access Project. Thanks so much for making the time, Jenna. Thank you for talking to me about birth control. And now we're gonna take you back to the Capitol where this week, members of the Assembly and Senate examined the housing portion of Governor Hochul's budget. The issue of housing creation dominated the 2023 legislative session as the governor tried and ultimately failed to push through a comprehensive package that would have potentially doubled the rate of new home growth over the next decade. This year, the governor is pushing a much more modest proposal, which was just one of the issues discussed at this week's housing hearing that was covered by New York Now reporter Chantel Destra. As outlined in the governor's executive budget, communities who receive pro-housing certificates will be able to access $650 million in state funding. Last week, the governor hosted a roundtable with local leaders from 20 communities across the state who've opted into the program. This is what they said they wanted. They wanted carrots, and we have $650 million of carrots to put on the table, literally, and to tell them that this is available to communities that are willing to do what is necessary. So every corner of the state was saying this is going to help solve their problems. The employers want to bring more employees in. They don't have housing. Young people want a place to live after school. They don't have enough housing. Seniors want to downsize, and they don't have enough housing. So uh, from Poughkeepsie to Binghamton to Dunkirk, all over the state, the leaders have told us that this is the path that they want to be on, and I want to inspire more communities to step forward and be part of this. At the executive budget hearing on housing, some lawmakers offered pushback on the pro-housing community plan. Assembly Housing Committee Chair Linda Rosenthal said the definition of the plan seemed vague, pushing the state's Commissioner of Housing and Community Renewal to provide more specifics. Uh, sure. Is there anything specifically you'd want no, me to no, cover? No, Just there's not much info about uh, it. Sure. So there's three ways that you apply. You submit us a letter of intent. Uh, you submit us your zoning code and your zoning and your building permit data. And then you either um, through your building permits 
should reflect that you have either grown, which is the third way to get certified, the sort of third piece. Uh, and if you haven't grown, then we would ask that you pass a resolution locally that has a series of sort of pro-housing statements in it about reducing regulation to housing, um, uh, wanting to grow your housing stock, that type of thing. Those are the sort of three steps a community has to take to get certified. Aside from the pro-housing community plan, lawmakers pushed the commissioner on the 421A tax abatement program for developers, public housing, and Section 8. And some lawmakers argued there can be no housing plan without certain tenant protections, such as good cause and the housing access voucher program. Advocates agree, including Sia Weaver, a tenant organizer with Housing Justice for All. There's a lot of support for good cause eviction, both within the legislature, but also within the general public. It's a really popular bill all over the state. And the only reason that it wouldn't make it into the final budget is if the governor is working at the behest of the real estate industry. Um, we're confident that we'll be able to get something like good cause eviction done this year. Um, the question is what version of the bill, and we really need to make sure that it's statewide and that no tenants are exempt from the, from the proposal. As budget negotiations continue, Housing is likely to be a sticking point for the governor and legislature to be able to meet the April 1st budget deadline. And we'll have more on the debate over the governor's housing proposal in the future, as well as additional coverage of budget negotiations this spring. But now we're going to check in with Assemblymember Amy Pollan, a Westchester County Democrat who is in her second year as her chamber's health committee. New York Now reporter Chantel Destra spoke with Paulin about Medicaid spending in the budget, her effort to create a single-payer health insurance model in the Empire State, and the future of controversial legislation allowing terminally ill New Yorkers to end their lives with assistance from a doctor. Here's that conversation. Thank you so much for being here, Assemblymember. Thank you for having me. Now, health care takes up a large portion of the state's budget year after year. A lot of that has to do with Medicaid. We know that Medicaid spending has ballooned over the last couple of years, largely in part due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This year in the executive budget, Governor Kathy Hochul has stated that she wants to scale back on Medicaid spending um, and find ways to save. What is your perspective on the governor's proposal? Well, right now, uh, the governor's proposal isn't fully formed. Uh, there were uh, anticipated uh, unallocated cuts, something we've never seen before, uh, of close to $400 million in Medicaid, which translates into an $800 million cut because of the federal match. So those are not flushed out. We don't know what they are. Um, $200 million in long-term care and $200 million in managed care. And we, we just don't know what they are. So we don't even um, understand what's going to happen in the budget, uh, you know, until some of that's laid out, perhaps in the 30-day amendments. Mm -hmm. So you don't understand the governor's proposal as it is, as it stands. So in what ways are you hoping that the governor and legislative leaders tackle Medicaid spending in the final state budget? Well, it's a little scary um, because uh, we uh, know that our entire health care system is suffering from a workforce shortage. They're suffering, as you said, um, post-COVID from uh, a depletion of funds from the federal government. And so we, um, uh, we're overloaded, and yet we're deficient in how we're serving people. And we need to rethink a lot of that. We need to 
uh, shore up our hospitals. We have uh, 75 hospitals in distress. That's 29% of our hospitals in financial distress. That's an enormous number. We have so many on the brink of distress mm -hmm. uh, that are pleading with us for more resources. Uh, our hospitals are where we go uh, if we need uh, tertiary care, if we need ambulatory care, we have uh, to shore them up. So that's a big problem. Nursing homes, another tremendous area that we have problems uh, financially with. They're going under. Uh, Not-for-profit uh, nursing homes are selling to for-profit nursing homes. We aren't seeing the capital investments being made that are needed. Uh, again, a workforce shortage and not enough resources for these facilities. So it's across the board, and uh, you know, and then we have a tight budget. It's a problem. Mm -hmm. And were there any measures that were put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic, emergency measures that you're hoping will be expanded to become permanent measures that the state will implement? Yes, um, uh, short answer. The, um, uh, some of the uh, measures that were put in place, you know, allowing some practitioners to have a small expanded scope, uh, allowing nurses to do more than they, to, to work at the top of their license, EMS workers to work at the top of their license, uh, and so forth down the line. Uh, physician assistants at the top of their license. Those are things that I think that we have to continue to do. They were uh, by executive order, as you point out, uh, for three years they worked, uh, and the hospitals are relying on them. Nursing homes are relying on them for us to go forward uh, and to maintain them. Mm -hmm. And your predecessor, um, form, former assembly member Richard Godfrey, he was, of course, us you know, the lead sponsor and longtime champion of the New York Health Act. I know last year you um, took over as assembly sponsor for the bill. And this is a bill that has been, you know, in the legislature, but hasn't moved forward for several, several years. So what is the path forward for this bill? So first for, um, for who's, you know, our viewers, right? Your viewers, um, uh, to understand what it is. You know, it, it basically um, simulates a model. There's lots of models out there in lots of countries uh, that really make healthcare a right. This bill makes healthcare a right. And it makes it a right in, so that if someone presents themselves at a hospital, they present themselves at a doctor's office, uh, that they know that they're gonna be able to, um, to get the healthcare that they want and deserve. It doesn't rely on uh, high premium payments. Uh, and we hope that this bill will be able to become law at some point. We're still, working through a lot of the bugs, you know, um, and we still have to win over some of the unions. Uh, but long term, uh, it's something that we should do. Mm -hmm. And another bill that you've been championing for is um, the Medicaid and dying bill, which would allow for patients who are terminally ill to be able to request medication to self-administer to end their own life. Um, and that bill has been, I've been watching it closely, you've been garnering a lot of support um, for the bill. A lot of people who were completely against it for religious reasons have actually, you know, changed their mind and shown their support. So how will you continue to garner support for the bill, for the bill this um, year? I think we have the support we need. 
Um, I do think that this might be our year. Um, I'm very hopeful that uh, we have won over so many of my colleagues. Certainly, we've won over the citizens of New York State, you know, the residents of New York State. Um, the polls show overwhelmingly people support bringing uh, death with dignity to New York, uh, like we did in New Jersey, like they did in California, like they did in Oregon and in 10 other states. So it's time has come. Uh, as you said, a lot of my colleagues who were once against it are now recognizing, either through their own personal unfortunate experience with family members or through constituents who have come to them, that it's the right thing to do for New Yorkers. So I have a very high expectation that we're going to see this bill move forward. Mm -hmm. And turning to reproductive rights and abortion access, um, New York has codified um, abortion access um, in the days after the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And Democrats have made this a top priority um, year after year since 2022. Um, so how will the Assembly continue to expand on abortion access? I know in the Senate um, earlier this month, they passed a slew of bills aimed at doula care, providing support for new mothers and, you know, continuing to expand access to um, abortion care. So where do those particular bills stand in the Assembly? Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of um, laws made, you know, in this area. You know, the governor made her, um, uh, in her executive budget, or, well, in her, in her state of the state, she indicated that she was going to make um, maternal care, maternal mortality, um, uh, infant mortality, uh, top issues, you know, as well as she's always shown leadership on reproductive rights. And we together, uh, we, the legislature and the governor together, I think, uh, will be looking at a lot of um, a lot of initiatives. A couple of my personal initiatives I'll mention, and that um, one that passed and became law just recently uh, was to allow birth control pills to to uh, be sold over the counter uh, uh, in a way uh, that they've never been sold before uh, at pharmacies, and we're we're going to see we're going to see that uh, making making that much more accessible for people. Mm -hmm. uh, I also have a bill for um, uh, to make medication abortion over the counter, uh, to simulate over the counter uh, with a non-patient specific script. So that bill, I'm pushing very hard. Um, there are countries like India which do it uh, with, with no adverse impact on women, just making it more accessible. So we have emergency contraception accessible. We have birth control pills accessible. Hopefully soon we'll have medication abortion accessible mm -hmm. uh, and make it so much easier for women to get the health care they need at a time that they need it. Mm -hmm. And year after year, you do um, top the list of lawmakers who have been sponsoring bills that um, pass and a lot of them were signed into law, a lot of your bills. So what is your secret to being a lawmaker that continuously is the sponsor of bills that makes it over the finish line? What every, is the secret sauce? <laughs> every, every bill uh, is, uh, has its individual path. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, he, um, uh, um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, organizational skills, I think, more than anything else. I can't come back to that. Uh, but it's it's... Uh, it's really following each bill's path and uh, and 
I have a very terrific staff that also um, works closely on all of the bills. But, I, you know, no bill, every bill is a, has a secret sauce. And that's really what you have to think about, you know, and it's relationship building. Um, it's being nice to people in the legislature, right. you know, and hoping that, you know, you can, uh, you know, convince them uh, of your of your bill. You know, so if you are nice and kind <laughs> and you uh, look at each bill's secret sauce, right. you know, you can have a, a great deal of success. Mm -hmm. And your predecessor, we know, was health committee chair for a very long time. Um, and you came on to be the chair of the health committee last year. So what was that transition like? It's still tough. <laughs> um, uh, I will never be Dick Godfrey. Mm -hmm. He was um, uh, he was something very special, and knew this area so much better than I'm ever going to know it. But I'm doing the best I can, and I I have the great fortune of being able to rely on him uh, because he's still there. He's still in my life. He's still uh, a phone call away for any time I have a question. So we're we're working hard. Um, to to be half of what Dick was, and I'll take that. Mm -hmm. And what kind of legacy are you hoping to have as health committee chair? So I, I think if I pass Aiden dying this year, I will be very, um, uh, very content to have that as a legacy element. And, uh, you know, there's some things that need to happen. Uh, we need to deal with the workforce shortage. We need to reform our our EMS system. Those are some of the things that I'm hoping to tackle. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot to look forward to, um, but we'll leave it here for now. Thank you so much for joining us And today. thank you for having me. And we were speaking with Assembly Health Committee Chair, Amy Pollan. And we'll have more on all the issues discussed in that conversation as they make their way through the Capitol. But that does it for us this week here at New York Now. If you missed any of today's program, want to revisit past episodes, or explore our web extras, make sure to visit nynow.org. From all of us at WMHT, I'm David Lombardo. Thanks for watching this week's edition of New York Now. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.